I think the urgency is that um, that I use this term unraveling, which I know you find interesting. The world's like an old jumper; it is coming apart at the seams, and people are are the material. You know, they are the sh- the shredding themselves, and they don't know how to change and how to stand on their own two feet or get the right support. And navigating society is really difficult, and particularly, you know, the credit system, universal credit in the UK and wherever you know all around the world very working. little social safety net here yeah and so if you don't have family if you don't have loved ones or friends or an organization that can support you and i mean when i talk about support i'm talking like support for me is an arm around the shoulder and a poke in the ribs you know you need both things you, one is not enough you need it you need both hi welcome back this week's guest is simon boyle a london-based difference maker Simon is the visionary behind the Beyond Food Foundation and the Brigade Bar and Kitchen. Since 2004, he's worked tirelessly to help homeless people across London rebuild their lives, imparting his passion, skills and knowledge of cooking and food. In 2010, Simon partnered with PwC, Devere Venues and the Homes and Communities Agency in the UK to launch the Brigade Restaurant in London Bridge which became the home of a unique set of training programmes for those affected by homelessness. Since COVID, his Ecolab has expanded its purpose through a series of life-changing interactive workshops that use food to motivate and inspire people whose lives have unravelled, people who need vital support and inspiration to re-knit the fabric of their lives. Simon has always been enthusiastic about food, using food for social change, and as a sought-after consultant, his detailed knowledge of the social enterprise sector has made him a valuable asset to companies looking to push their social agendas. Appointed the first-ever culinary ambassador for Unilever, Simon has also used his unparalleled experience to help other high-profile businesses, from Nando's to Nike, on everything from brand building to product architecture. Known for conceptualising new products from scratch, and with an experience in gold standard benchmarking, Simon has gained a reputation for breathing new life into brands he collaborates with, which include Ben & Jerry's, Knorr, Marriott and dozens more. I interviewed Simon here in Austin during South by Southwest, where his son's band, Noah and the Loners, were playing. And a shout out also to Melanie van der Velde for the connection. Now, over to Simon. Welcome, Simon. Hey Mark, how you doing? Very good. Great to see you here in Austin. Yeah, I know. Good serendipity um, in action. Exactly. And a shout out um, to Melanie van der Veld, um, who recommended that we speak to you next. I didn't think mm. it was going to be about five days later. Yeah, no, just uh, crazy. But uh, great to be in Austin and uh, for, for slightly different reasons. But here we are. Well, let's get going. Um, you're here just as a, a, a point. You've got a T-shirt on there saying Noah and the Loners. Yeah. Uh, up and coming British punk band, uh, your son. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Joseph's the lead guitarist of Noah and the Loners, and they're here at the South by Southwest um, Festival. So um, it's a big day today. He's got two gigs. So um, this was nice to slide this in as well. So great. Yeah. Well, let's see in a couple of years' time when they are um, as big as the Idols. So then we'll be going, wow, do you remember that? Yeah, <laughs> anyway. Exactly. So, um, so many great things have actually sort of had their early days apps and bands that um, made their big break in South by Southwest. So fingers crossed to yeah. Noah. Yeah, super exciting. Yeah. Well, um, we've established what you do uh, in my introduction. Let's get started with the two big fundamental questions about you. Um, who are you? Who do you think you are as a human being? 
Oh, that's a good question. Big question. Uh, I mean, I think the first, best thing to say is I'm not a perfect. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a chef. Um, I'm a, I think I like to think I'm a very thoughtful, um, individual and I really believe in fairness and that people need to feel a future. And in this world that we live in, we don't uh, mm. often do that. And um, we concentrate on those that have amazing futures rather than the people that are lacking um, that. And um, so I, I think I'm pretty, I'm hardworking. Um, I love food and I love connecting people with food, um, using food as a catalyst. Um, and, you know, positive, relentless. Mm-hmm. Um I will fight for the cause. Uh, tooth and nail. Relentlessness has, is by, a byproduct of um, by, a byproduct of being a restaurateur and a chef. You've got to be. Yeah, I think it comes from my childhood, really, of of you know not really um, performing very well mm-hmm. um, and being an amazing. I always had an amazing family, but you know my brothers were really awesome at school and really creative and. You know, my parents were really brilliant and I just was always felt like I was on the back foot and slightly misunderstood. Um, didn't really do my homework. Would rather run home and peel potatoes and make shepherd's pie. Um, than the, per- the perfect son, the perfect son. <laughs> in, well, it's, it's a masquerade. So, um, I'm sure as parents, they were like, Oh, you know, he just won't do what he needs to do, but not realizing that I was doing exactly what I needed to do. Um, I, I live that with my own son now. He's playing guitar at 18 years old rather than, you know, I don't know, doing a maths degree. He's doing a music performance degree. So doing what he loves to do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny that so many people, when you talk about people's upbringing and schooling and education, the, the standard thing is you, you get pushed into a system where you're expected to go and focus on getting to university to do medicine or law or business mm-hmm. or marketing or whatever. Rarely, I don't think it's in many schools we'd ever sort of guide people into restaurant, uh, into hospitality or mm. um, being chefs. It's not something that career guidance, certainly in Britain, and mm. well, I'm assuming you were sort of like 80s growing yeah. up, yeah, that it wasn't really around as a career guidance, you know, as a pathway to yeah, uh, op- econ- economic opportunity. Yeah, I'm not the best person to talk about education because I really believe it's it's broken. Like we do not understand that we we're dealing with individuals and individuals learn in different ways and have different um, different skill sets, which usually you you don't realise until they're way above eighteen. So I, I you know it's really difficult, and I understand you know there's a you know, you've got 30 kids in a class and, and somehow you've got to keep some law and order and structure. But it is, for someone like me anyway, it, it was really difficult. But there must be some ways of being able to pull out people's kind of, uh, you know, passions earlier so that you can focus on the, the things that they do very well rather than what we tend to do is focus on the things that we don't do well. And it's crushing for people. Were you aware of that as you were growing up? Did you feel as if... You were being ignored, your talents, your interests, um, by the system. By the system, not by my family. Uh-huh. My family were really supportive, and my, you know, as much as they they wanted me to do well at school, they understood that there was something something going on, which was quite interesting. 
So, you know, I was spending my weekends cooking. I was, I understood very early on that if I made biscuits, for example, that my family would sit around the table. We might argue and kick each other under the table or whatever, but it was togetherness. Um, and so my parents really went with it. Um, but, you know, they did try and sit me down and, you know, to do my maths or whatever, mm. but it, you know, it didn't really come easy. Mm. So do you think that sense of being ignored or let down by the education system, not your parents stuck with you and ha- had an impact on. Yeah. I mean, I, even now I'm 50, I've just turned 50. Even now, pretty much on a daily basis, I will draw on that as a power to, to help people that have lost their way and that they might have lost their way 20 years ago and might be through some form of tra- trauma or an ex- a negative experience has happened to them. But, you know, invariably a lot of the people I meet are people that were felt let down by society and that often it was at school and even now the young people that I work with now I can see that you know we work with a lot of pupil referral units and you can see that that you know that they're, they're very grateful to get to those units because actually they they teach on an individual basis whereas in the mainstream school you, if you don't fit in then you you know you you stick out hmm so in answering that first question about who who you are, um, you've sort of answered also the second question, which is who or what made you, mm. you, and clearly your parents had an impact. Were there any sort of teachers and mentors or any other early life experiences that set you in this, on this direction and, and embedded those core principles and values of wanting to be in service of people who are maybe left behind? Yeah, I mean, when I was younger, I didn't realize that's what I was going to do. You know, I wanted to be a chef, so I was influenced by lots of chefs. Um, early, early on, it was through the Savoy Hotel when I was an apprentice. Um, I, I wouldn't say my experience there was mixed. It was an amazing experience to be working at the Savoy at 17 yeah. years old was quite incredible. How did you manage to get your foot in the door there? Um, well, I'd, I'd been at a college and the same thing happened. I'd start, my dad had dr- dragged me down to the local college and said, you know, you've got to do something. Um, go and go there. And the same thing happened at that college. We, we were treated the same. They had very little money. We had too many people in a class, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I dipped out and started to dip out of it and happened to, uh, be in the student union having a few beers when I, when my classmates came in with suits on. And I was like, what are you doing? And they said, well, today's our interviews. What for? I say. <laughs> Well, there's a famous chef coming in. He's coming to interview people for this amazing new kind of apprenticeship scheme. Um, of which I finished my pint very quickly and ran over to the faculty <laughs> and got told to stand outside for two hours and waited. And there was a chef in there called Brian Turner. I don't know if you ever heard no. of him. He's a, he's a kind of an old Yorkshire chef, but a classic well known chef. And he was interviewing for the Royal Academy of Culinary Arts. I'm now a fellow of the Royal Academy. Um, but at the time I was a scrawny little 17 year old who, <laughs> who was, um, was trying to be a great chef and, and felt like I couldn't. Um, my college lecturer introduced me to, to Brian, um, at the, the very end of the day and said, this guy's a waste of space. And that's how he started the conversation of which I then, um, using a lot of swear words said, you know, gave my view on, I, I want to cook amazing food. I can't do it here can't learn here i want to i don't want to share a chicken with five other people i want my own chicken (laughs) (laughs) 
My um, fucking chicken. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then so um, I was the only one to be chosen. Wow. And they, and they put me at the Savoy, which I'd I'd had a um, I'd had a passion for for a few years. I'd I'd, I'd learned about the Savoy when I was thirteen. Um, I'd read a Sunday a Sunday Mail um, sort of pull out about the Savoy Hotel, and I was like, that's where I want to work. Um, didn't tell anyone. So again, quite serendipitous to to kind of be be placed there. I was there for four years. Um, and really grew up very quickly because 20, you know, back in, when was it? 88. Um, there was a hundred chefs and, and I was the youngest. And in those days it was weakest out first. Yeah. I mean, that was the, that was the structure. So of the when place. we watch shows, all these celebrity shows about chefs and Gordon Ramsay and Kitchen Confidential and that one, the actual drama that was on recently on one of the streaming platforms about chef going back to New York, uh, to, his hometown from 11 Madison Square mm. and the pressure yeah. cooker experience that it yeah. is in that kitchen. Is that what it's really like? It, it is like that. Yeah. For a young chef yeah. being shouted at. It, in my early days, it was all like that. Um, you have to prove yourself. Mm. Um, the problem is with cooks is they're not taught how to manage people. So when you go to college or if you learn in a kitchen or, you know, however you've learned, um, you're just learned, you're teach, you're taught how to cook. You know, you're not even really taught how to manage the business. You know, yes, you might do some costings, but you won't really understand it. And then, of course, every day you start the day with produce and you finish the day with plated food. It's, it's, you know, the project lasts no more than 18 hours. So the pressure builds all the way through the day. Now, if you add that to the, the fact the chef's got a name and, you know, one doesn't want to be that to be ruined by you. Um, or you might have, you know, um, investors that are, you know, or maybe even put, you've put everything on the line, like I have done a f- several times now. And it's pressure and they're just not, you're not taught how to deal with pressure. And so there's only one way of that manifesting itself during service. You've got an hour and a half window of, you know, between the first starters and the, and the last mains. And, and boy, better, but it, better, better it be right then it can't go out wrong. So. It's um it's an interesting diary, but it is changing, and you know people are working less hours. They're they're trying to try and change timetables now to rotary systems to try and make it a little bit easier. Um, so and my the kitchen at Brigade is very calm. So and that, that I want that because of my experience at the Savoy particularly. Um, I think I mentioned to you when we first met for coffee the other day that um Sam and I had been involved with um a chef in New York called Robert Marchetti mm. and doing a podcast for him called The Raw Hospitality Show. He did a couple of uh, series. And one of the, the recurring things that came up through that, and it was during the back end of COVID, is just the the mental health impact. Mm. Not only has it always been an issue because of late hours and the pressure, um, um, but with COVID on top of that, that had had a really bad effect on, on a lot of hospitality staff yeah is that something that you're you've been aware of in in the uk oh i mean hugely mm-hmm. i mean effectively beyond food uh, was was a homelessness charity um and as you know i've changed the strategy and since the change we are we've fast become a mental health charity i mean we still use talk about homelessness we still obviously talk about hospitality as a broader industry that we work in um, but absolutely. Um, but it's also, 
it can be about good good mental health as much as poor mental health because the camaraderie that you get in the the team spirit that you that you have is is much stronger than you would get in an office you know as a, as an example um so it it's it's got i would say it's got pluses and minuses but you've got to be really careful you can't be treating people badly you you can't be speaking to people badly you can't be derogatory because they've not placed a piece of herb in the right position um and you don't know what's going on at home or what's gone on in the past and so it can trigger all sorts of stuff by being treated in that way so i think the industry is changing there's great charities like the burnt chef project um and others that are doing some really amazing work in um trying to think about you know how how chefs are and are they being looked after and so on but um but like i say in our kitchen it's all about respect people they're employed to because they want to work within the confines of what we've created um this sort of social enterprise and charity so if they don't like it and they come and we all find them out and weed them out pretty quickly mm-hmm. i mean i've what I've read about you, travel has played a big part in mm. the work you've done. Mm. You're not your traditional linear uh, path to being a chef mm. and a restaurateur or anything like that because you've got an entrepreneurial side mm. to you and you've worked in corporates mm. and advised corporates and continue to do so. So I'd maybe like you just to explain the, mm. the context of that and how that has also opened your eyes and impacted the, the your purposeful journey. Mm. So when I read the article about the Savoy when I was 13, got to 15, I decided I'd, I wanted my own business. Um, and it wasn't, I didn't really know why. I just thought, you know, you don't quite fit in. You're better to be like the boss that, um, rather than be the guy that's not, not doing what he wants to do kind of thing. Um, and then, so I took a decision when I started college, that first college, I would do lots of different things. Now, when I got into the academy, the academy was very critical because I was moving from one genre of cooking to another to another. Most chefs will go into hospital, you know, five star hotels and they'll stay there or, you know, private clubs and they'll stay there or restaurants, Michelin star restaurants and they'll stay there. Whereas I, I, every job I had, my strategy was to go somewhere entirely different. So I've worked in hotels, restaurants, cruise ships. I worked for a personal chef as a, uh, in print for a prince in Saudi. I worked for Unilever. Um, worked for Anton Mosman, you know, like loads of different things. What drove that nonconformity? <laughs> Probably going back to my childhood of uh, and the schooling, yeah. yeah, for sure, yeah. Um, and but the, what I now realise is, um, for me, it was the perfect strategy because I wanted to do something different and I wanted to use all my experiences, um, that I possibly could to to drive whatever it was I was going to do, um. But I was heavily criticized at quite a lot of times, you know, um, if I was going for a job and they said, oh, you've not stuck at anything. It was like, really? Because, you know, I think I've really, <laughs> I think I've done a lot of good things. <laughs> so it was kind of interesting. Um, but, but certainly, yeah, it's definitely influenced me. And working with the corporates, because, and I, you know, it wasn't that I was working in the kitchens. I was embedded in the teams doing, you know, Unilever as their executive development chef for a long time global. Um, and then I went, went, became their culinary ambassador, which was having a giant soapbox of which to preach at them about what my values and how that could influence the kind of the bit, the wider context of what their work was going to do across the world. So 
you know, kind of interesting for a chef yeah. to be able to get that mm. position. And I'd say the last good two thirds of my working career have been unique jobs that jobs that I've had the opportunity to create and shape and form in a way. And the problem is with that is sometimes you're quite insecure because it's new and you're not quite sure if you're doing a good enough job because there's no <laughs> context to it. Can I ask you a question about you, Lever? It just reminded me. Um, I interviewed a guy here in Austin, funnily enough, he was sitting across there from us. And um, his name's Robert Hansen, ex-White Hat hacker, security consultant, um, now a podcaster himself. And he had this great line. He said, there are two types of people in the world that you've got people who are bill- want to be billionaires and people that want to change a billion people's lives. He said, I want to be the latter. When you describe working for Unilever and having that soapbox to impact the dietary, let's say the dietary habits of food consumption of all the people that Unilever touches, Mm. you presumably in a position where you were arguably affecting a billion people's lives through Mm. the influence you had at that organization. Mm. Yet you're now very focused on a much more scaled down mm. version of that. Can you just say what what was it that led you to maybe take a step away from having such, let's say, influence, not power, but influence within an organization, a powerful organization like Unilever? Mm. I think it's because you, even though I had this amazing position, Unilever, he constantly changes. So mm. it's it's in cycles. Or I don't know what it is, three or five year cycles. Or the change of the CEOs and just even recently yeah. one that has yeah. taken a step away from yeah, the yeah. purpose mission. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, exactly. So, and there's a world of difference between Paul Pullman and Alan Chope, right? Yeah. I mean, mm. so I, as I was kind of, I was becoming a negative equity when I was working in development, because you had to, I had to work with constraints, I had to work with budgets, I had to work with marketeers that were driving um, personal missions about what they wanted to work on, not necessarily what I thought was the right thing. So I started to become a bit negative, and that was when the tsunami happened. So um, 2004, Asian, was, yeah. yeah. And so I decided to take a step away from that. So I called up um, the chairman in the UK, actually, because I'd been teaching him how to cook and said, look, this was on day after Boxing Day. And I said, look, I want to go and do something. I got to, you know, I don't want to just, you know, send a check over to whoever to, you know, to contribute that way. I want to do something physically. It was, I, and I'd traveled loads of all the areas that had been hit. So he, he gave me his blessing, paid for, pay, actually paid for my flight, actually. Wow. Where took, did you fly into? Went to Sri Lanka, went to Colombo, um, ended up down in a place called Perelier, which is where the, there was a, the largest natural train, uh, rail disaster. It was hit by the, do you know you would have probably crossed paths with one of our other guests? Ah. Uh, Dan McDougall and, um, Navdip Dalawar. They were BBC foreign correspondents and they were there at that train. Ah, well, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I arrived two days afterwards. The Italian uh, army wow. um, had buried two and a half thousand people in the dunes just on, on the, the outside of the, basically there's a jungle there kind of, um, and, um, and about another two and a half thousand people had died in the surrounding area, but a lot of people had gone into the jungle and were petrified. A very poor area. A very unsupported area. So, um, I arrived in the airport with a load of Unilever products. 
um, and um, myself. Just on your own? Just on my own, yeah. And I met a bunch of people and we hired a, a, a bus and a van and, and we put, chucked all our stuff in it. And we, I met a guy, a photographer from the Metro newspaper in, in the early, in a long time ago. And he was, um, he said, look, you've got to go to this thing. There's no one helping. They get, the Italians have moved on. And so we arrived and it was utter chaos. Very sad. And that's where I learned about displacement. And so really, can you imagine returning back to Unilever, having experienced that I was there for a while, having experienced that, you know, life couldn't continue. So I, um, it's funny because I was called into a meeting my very first day back. I was very disheveled. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd had, I'd, I'd had quite long hair before that and I'd got massive head lice over my shirt. I'd shaved my hair off and was pretty rustic looking and completely broken because of what I had experienced. You must have witnessed some horrific. Yeah. So I, when I got this request to go to a meeting, I was in a little meeting room, you know, that you get in offices. I thought, I wonder what this is about. And my boss was there and he was looking a bit sheepish and I'd always had. You know, he's a great guy, but we just clashed mm-hmm. because my vision of what I was doing was different to what they needed, really. You know, they just needed someone to toe the line and follow the brief and then walked somebody mm-hmm. from HR. And I thought, oh, gosh, they're going to let, they're going to let me go. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, day one, you know, coming back. And I said, oh, before you go anywhere, don't, it's all fine. You know, don't worry. I'm, uh-huh. my, my world has changed. What do you mean? I said, I, you know, I think you're going to let me go. So it's okay, you know. And they were like, we're not going to let you go. We want to change things. <laughs> and that's when they gave me the culinary ambassador role. But I wanted to, I had changed big time. And so I basically negotiated, said, look, I'm happy to work with you. I would love that opportunity, but I need to go and find out what I want to do. And so they gave me, they gave me the space and the time to do it. And I was there for another three years, um, balancing, you know, creating a social enterprise and being the culinary ambassador was, was truly unique. And I think, that's why I love working with with certain corporates because I do believe there's some there's leaders within those organisations that really understand that they need people to challenge them and think differently. Well, that that leads nicely onto what you're working to achieve before you leave this mortal coil. A few years <laughs> yet, hopefully. Yeah. Um, I said in the introduction that you formed Beyond Food um, as a non-profit um, charity registered or a registered charity in the UK. Could you? Just describe that genesis of that and why you're doing that specifically and maybe just sort of give us a genesis story. Yeah. So, so when Unilever did give me that space and time to think about what to do, um, I was involved in uh, a program called Unleashed, which was taking kind of certain people within the organization that could cult- change culture within Unilever and externally of it. Um, and part of that process was to, expose us to people like social entrepreneurs mm. and charities and causes and um and you know to bring it back into the firm and of course you know the the risk was always they they would lose people um and I was one of those people that kind of grabbed hold of the opportunity the experiences that they gave us were phenomenal and I did put them back into the firm but I also took a lot out of them and so realized very quickly that I needed to form a, my own organization it started off as an events company, actually, so using food to connect people. Um, and it wasn't always a charity. It was a business it's, to start with. I mean, social enterprise was pretty not really Unknown at that unknown, time, yeah. yeah. But I wasn't very good at running a business, so I would fluctuate so, from having... So when you were saying you are doing events, 
So you would organize dinners and invite? Started in people's in people's homes. So mm-hmm. I dry lined my own garage and turned it into an industrial kitchen. Uh-huh. And, and I, that's how it started. So I'd rock up on a, because I was working at Unilever. So I was rock up on a Friday or a Saturday and do parties and events and things. And that gave me the money to then do like communal stuff. Uh-huh. And so it started that way. Then I realized that the garage wasn't big enough anymore, frankly, because mm-hmm. uh, it was doing pretty big mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Um, so I took on a, on a farm building in my local village in Surrey called the chicken shed. And we started and I built a cookery school and a, a meeting space. So, and the idea was I'll bring locals in to kind of share food and, you know, local businesses to kind of think differently. Didn't get a single booking. Didn't do a good, didn't do a business plan at all. Thought it was a great idea. Local companies didn't get it. And then suddenly I get the odd call. Usually it started with Unilever going, can we borrow your kitchen? We'd like to think some. We'd like to think think something through. And then I'd go, yeah, cool. Uh, would you do like a sandwich lunch? No, I don't do a sandwich lunch. You can cook lunch with me if you like. And so we'd cook lunch. They'd have a meeting. Then they'd say, Simon, would you just drop in and chat to us about what you know? And suddenly, I realised the power of what I was doing. And then we were, and I was focusing on the wrong ind- you know, the wrong target group. So I started focusing on massive corporate businesses. And at the chicken shed, there was no phone line. There was a phone line, but you couldn't get mobile uh, signals. And so people really did some good work there. Uh-huh. Um, as an example, it's no interruption, no interruptions, yeah. cooking. So as a gr- great example, is Richard Branson came there with his the the managing directors of all the Virgin businesses who had were challenging towards each other, and they really sorted their relationships at, at the Brilliant. chicken shed. So very quickly, I realised. Food was a connector. From the chicken shed, we moved to Soho in the House St. Barnabas, which was a homeless organization. And that had been, they'd closed the building down because the, it wasn't being kept up to modern day standards. And then that was where connected the kind of displacement piece, the, the bit that I was very passionate about. So I employed the 69 women that had been living and in, in, at the House St. Barnabas. I got, um, turned it into t- temporary event space and then started that whole journey of, sort of socially minded kind of events. Um, and corporates would come into that space. Yeah, corporates, brands, you name it. It was in the middle of Soho, so it was very trendy. it would trendy. always be events around food. And yeah, yeah, food always, I mean, food is a big part of my life, so mm-hmm. food is always there. People always need to be fed. The, I was t- training vulnerable people how to cook food, serve food, uh, clear away from the, an event. And at the start, not everybody really cared about that, but they wanted to be in a funky place in Soho. But soon we kind of grew this idea that, you know, um, that the, the social impact part was part of the story of being there. I, I was there for 18 months. Um, the people that ran the house, St. Barnabas, had a slightly different vision to me. And so they took it on themselves to continue what I'd been doing, but without me. So I left and I took all my, the business I had on the books, I took it with me. Apart from I went to a different part of London, naively thinking they'd all still want to come. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the to Tower Hill. There's a, a church called by um, the Tower. Oh. And, uh, oh, Hallows, that's it. And they had a little lean to kind of community center. And so I, I took it on for a couple of years to kind of, you know, continue what I was doing. Um, but still consulting with the Unilever. Still with Unilever at the the start of that, and but that was sort of coming to an end. And so I lost all the business. I mean, we lost so much money; it was ridiculous. I just didn't understand that I needed to take the customers on the journey with me, and I just didn't. 
I didn't have the opportunity, to be honest. So I, I was running out of cash pretty quickly. It's been said a lot of times that life happens for you, um, not to you. Um, it sounds like this is an example of life happening for you, although it didn't seem that rosy at the time. Mm. You made the decision around that time, I believe, to go on Dragon's Den that was pivotal, not necessarily in getting money from the dragons or, or the sharks, but it did open doors for you. Perhaps you could maybe just um, explain that. Yeah, I mean, going on Dragon's Den was, is a bit like going on live public TV with four or five million people watching with your pants down. Trousers. <laughs> so yeah. you're, what you're trying to do is you're trying to gain people to – really, I think a lot of people on there are not financially stable, and they go on there as a bit of a way out. And mm. that, that's what it was for me, as much as it was about I've got a great idea. But you must get vetted before you go on. I got tons of vetting, but because of that, I ignored my business because I was so keen on getting on there that I wasn't actually looking after the day-to-day -day stuff. And I was also very focused on helping people. So – this is what I was saying about experience and, you know, having business experience, writing good business plans, I'm a massive advocate for. Um, but at the time, I wasn't like that. I was just this gung-ho kind of entrepreneurial kind of guy that wanted to make a difference to people. So I went on there, had a really good idea. Um, I had practiced it, so I knew it. I knew my, sort of knew my numbers. I took a guy who had murdered his brother. And I taught him how to bake bread and he was now making a living after being in prison for 25 years. And, and he needed to make a living because you can't just walk out of prison and the world looks after you. It doesn't work that way. Um, I made Deborah Mead and Cry, which is still one of my greatest highlights of my time because she was so captivated by what we were trying to do. The problem was it was 2008, 2008, the dragon's den still is now actually is about profit making. Um, enterprise rather than socially minded um they couldn't understand the difference um sorry they, they they understood that you know their worlds needed to be separate charity work and they do lots of it amazing work and their business where i believe that the two things are interlinked and i, I think it's okay to make a profit i want to make a profit because i can help people if i make a profit um and but they didn't want to take a profit from me and so they turned me down as it happens, I, I got, um, somebody who was watching and who believed in me and believed in what I was trying to do and, and, um, was also cutting his teeth into sort of social investment. And so he gave me all the money plus actually to help me get onto the, the, but the business to get back on its feet. We also did something called Spark Challenge, which was like a social entrepreneurs style dragons den. Not a, not a TV show, and I met PwC there, and PwC PwC as in the consultancy company. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they're accountants, auditors, um, and consultants, and and PwC like Unilever wanted to make a difference. They were building a um, a new head office in Tower, Tower just opposite Tower Bridge um, in More London, which is near London Bridge Station, and there's an old fire station in the front of it. And it was derelict and it's been derelict for years and years. And actually in more London, I don't know if you know that, but it was full of homelessness mm, for a long yeah. time. And PwC had been in that community for a long time. So understood that number one, they wanted something proper to go into that fire station, but they didn't know what they, but they wanted to sort of influence it. They understood that they had a position in the community and they needed to, to, you know, uphold the community and help the community. And then I came along with 
an idea. And that idea was to turn the whole place into a, so- a social hub. That suited PwC very much. The Here comes the interesting part. So Because I told a very big white lie, uh, two actually on the same <laughs> day. So one was I, I'd found through meeting PwC that they were very socially minded and understood about social business. I also knew the DCLG, which is the Department of Communities and Local Government, where homelessness falls. And I knew they had a shortfall of money and ideas. And so I very quickly went A plus B. <laughs> um, and so I called up the, the person I knew at the DCLG and told them that PwC wanted me to, to open this amazing homelessness restaurant. And I did the same thing to PwC, vice versa. The DCLG guy said, I can only give you 800,000, but only if you've got PwC as an idea. And so I got off the phone and rang my contact at PwC and said, you know, and I had a very fraught two weeks of, you know, kind of, and eventually got everyone in the same room and was really honest and said, look, you know, this is what happened, but isn't it a good idea? And if we did it together and learned the power of partnership, because I, I'm not a brilliant business person. I'm much better now than I used to be, but you know, I can do what I can do really well if I've got good partners and they do what they do really mm-hmm. well. And that's why Brigade really ultimately is work. So we, so that was 2000. We opened in 2011, September. We're still going strong now. We've gone through a pandemic. We're going through the world's crisis. What we're going through. We've now, we've supported over 7,000 people. We've employed over 200 people, um, ourselves, vulnerable people ourselves full time through apprenticeship schemes. And we're going, we're going through an evolution of change at the moment. So mm-hmm. quite interesting. Can you explain why there's such an urgency to do what you're doing and to then maybe on to why it's important to scale what you're doing as well? I, th- I think the urgency is that, um, we, that I use this term unraveling, which I know you find interesting. Um, the world's like an old jumper. You know, it is coming apart at the seams and people are, are, are the material, you know, they are the, sh- the shredding themselves. And they don't know how to change and how to stand on their own two feet or get the right support. And navigating society is really difficult. And particularly, you know, the credit system, universal credit in the UK and wherever, you know, all around the world. Very little social safety net here. Yeah. And, um, and so if you don't have family, if you don't have loved ones or friends, um, or an organization that can, can, that can, support you and i mean when i talk about support i'm talking like support for me is an arm around the shoulder and a poke in the ribs you know you need both things one is not enough you need it you need both and so i think because of the pandemic and what's happening now with ukraine and the effect that that's had on the rest of the world we don't even know the tidal wave of um health problems and poverty and that's coming our way and so I do believe it's urgent, and we are with just one very tiny fraction of it. But what we do, others could learn from um, and make a bigger difference. I think um, more, you know, uh, more substantial difference than what we're doing. That being said, we've been really focused on making sure we make a difference for the group of people that mm-hmm. we work with wholeheartedly. I had a, <clears throat> I had a guest staying with me for South by Southwest, uh, Dr. Morgan Gay. Um, I did a short interview with her and she and her 
presentation at South by Southwest, one of the things she talked about was um, the fact that we are a part of a fragile system mm. and COVID just led us to see the fragility of the system that we live in. It's another way in a way of, of the way you describe of, of the unraveling and other guests have had recently have talked a lot about trauma, societal mm. level mm. trauma mm. Um, that's happening, not just individual mental trauma, but it's actually a, a seismic societal mm. effect that, that's occurring. And you, it sounds to me like you, what you've done um, just through the serendipity of these the relationships you built with people like PwC and the person that called you to support you um, in the early ventures, it, you built what sounds like a, if we think about it as design thinking, um, you've built a prototype hmm. for something that can actually not just address homelessness, but now, as you say, a broader issue that people are feeling this unraveling. Hmm. That prototype is, presumably is a, is a proven prototype that is working, that is actually getting people back into a, a system of feeling worth having a sense of self-worth purpose mm. and value mm. um how where do you take it next can i just two things just just yeah, to touch yeah, on sure. before i do that mm. one is about when you say you me yeah it's actually the the prototype is the partnership yes that you know that i have with pwc and the foundation that i created has because neither of us would have done it on our own or could have done it on our own just really important point. No, I, I think that's really important. Yeah, and I, and I had the power of, of yeah, relationships and, and partnerships. Yeah, and we always thought we always thought part of what brigade was about was that people would look in and go and do their own versions. So brigade is the restaurant, the restaurant yeah, and yeah. beyond food is the, the charity. charity, right? Okay. And the idea was we always thought, well, we'd do this thing together, which was a social enterprise and help people, which we do um, and continue to do. But other people would emulate and do their own version, but that is not really happening not as much as we would hope you know so that's just one point to sort of make the other thing is about trauma and the reason why societal trauma is going is going to is going to be devastating is because i know from the work we do with our homeless um uh trainees and apprentices that we work with in the past the trauma usually happens 20 years before we reach them before we got to them so you're almost at a point of no you can't help them because it, they've gone through so much challenge, through so much trauma, um, so much uh, exclusion that actually it's really difficult to help them. And we do help them, but it's really hard work. Now, I'm not sure everyone's got the same um, passion to keep going as I've got and the rel relentlessness that it takes. Um, but I, when I look at kids now and the people of referral units that we're working with, you can see if if I had just helped some of those people 20 years prior to it, it might have been a different thing. But what happens if we don't do this now? Like all those kids all around the world that didn't get the right education during the time during the pandemic, you know, I've, I've seen behavior in kids. It's very different now than what it used to be. They're much more immature since, since the pandemic. pandemic since, really? Yeah. They're, they're much more immature. They, they wow, don't I have see, the same social skills. You're seeing that in a matter of three years. Already seeing it. I'm already seeing it. And, and, and in year sevens and eights and nines, you can see that they have lacked the social development skills that they would have got if they, if the pandemic hadn't happened. So 
my fear is, well, what happens to them in, you know, in three or four yeah, years' time? The knock-on effects yeah. of it. The, as you're saying, well, how does it ma- How will it manifest? Yeah. Do you think? And if you don't have, if you're not lucky enough to have a, a family that is there to support you, mm. and you know, as, as you come out of this education system that we already know doesn't work for everybody, um, it's going to. It scares me to think about it. I mean, this unraveling. What was it that made you? Maybe you could just first of all describe the the, the nature of the program, what you take them through. Mm. A program, I believe, a three week um, program, a three week program called Fresh Life that takes people through that journey to help them get back and uh, hold get hold of their lives again and get them back on track. If you built this prototype in partnership mm. with PwC and other partners. Is it something that can could scale? Is it something that could be adopted either by other partnerships of businesses, of charities and corporates? Mm. Is it something that could scale to other cities or even other countries? Yeah. So, so effectively, Fresh Life is where well, it is a three week process. Um, it's linked to work experience. It used to be linked to an apprenticeship, but I, we've recently changed that. Um, to being more about just really good, solid work experience. Cause it's ultimately, if you've lost your confidence, actually you just need a small amount of work experience to then start to go right work to have a, a conversation about where you want to take yourself. It's not necessarily just an apprenticeship. Um, anyway, um, but fresh life is, and the first three weeks of the first week of fresh life is really about, um, trying to get people to understand that they are the priority. And it's been a long time since many of them ever, if they ever thought that they were the priority and that they need to look after themselves. And that comes in different ways. The other, the other part of, of it is that I have this thing that I, I believe, you know, like doors. So doors are barriers, you know, either, you know, and most people think that they're vulnerable. They think doors are locked. But actually, all doors are unlocked. Mm. We lock the doors. Mm. And so we've kind of, we developed this thing called the, the keys or the, to the, to the unlocked doors, mm. which are 10 things that we know that if people want to change their lives, uh, move forward in their lives, um, from being vulnerable to being, uh, you know, being happy. That's, mm. that's really yeah. ultimate. Um, that if they adopt these, these keys or some of them, um, that they will be successful. And um, we know. When they're not adopted, they're not less successful. So as an example, one of them is called necessary separation. And that's where you identify the thing that is going to stop you or the person or the place or the substance that will stop you moving forward. And by identifying it and then kind of committing to change it or take it out or lose it in your life for a you know period of time, you'll be able to take that step forward. And they're quite significant. So that's the first week we feed them every day good healthy food it's very practical so they do lots of cooking not as a skill to move into hospitality but just as life and life skill and we embed all sorts of things so obviously working within a team um you know starting to get passionate about something the second week is more about that next stage so it's one thing to want to move forward but how do you move forward so that idea of well, what do i need to be able to move forward, you know, identifying some of the things that you're going to require. But first, we on the first day, we work on, well, do you want to? I mean, is that is a conscious decision? Do you want to change your life? Is it something that you really want? And if you are, if you do, 
well, okay, well, let's identify how you're going to do it. One of the lovely exercises we do is we ask them to write our postcard that they will receive in six months' time. And they have to write it. What would you like it to say? You know, it's just setting out gentle ambition. And it's it's really hard, you know, to write yourself something, that, you know, some some future ambition. Um, and so that that's the second week. And it's, you know, we call it how to get a job and keep it. because And not the metaphor of getting a job is not that. It, it could just be like moving forward and, you know, but how do you, how do you maintain it? And so we teach that in the second week. The third week is more about, okay, now you've decided you want to move forward. You understand you've identified some of the things that you're going to require, some of the support. We can, we start to even, my, the team, the support and progressions team at Beyond Food starts to even work on some of the things like debt, finance, you know, health issues, you know, confidence issues, learning things that they might need to kind of be brushing up on. Um, but the third week is really about gaining confidence to go into, into the workplace because the workplace is not the ultimate answer, but it does solve, start solving some issues, some, you know, certainly financial issues. And so we then expose them to things which are really awesome, inspirational. They hear lots of people coming in and talking to them about how they've changed their lives and we're gearing them up ready for that work experience in brigade. It's a safe place. They come in. No matter who they are, what their what their background is, whether they're previously an accountant that's got a drink problem or a, a war veteran who's you know has got completely lost after you know leaving the armed services, or um, someone that's come out of prison because so there's any age range. There's no age range. Okay. Um, we tend to we want to we want to in, in welcome everybody. We do have a schools program called Beyond the Classroom, so we keep you know under under 18s and in one in one sort of age group for obvious reasons for safeguarding we have also a program called beyond um a prison which which we're kind of working on at the moment so we do work with ex offenders quite a lot but there's a significant group of them that need to, you know a little extra care mm-hmm. so we kind of we do sort of segment a little bit but not by age really apart from the kids and then the work experience is so important because it's suddenly we're, and we're not a backstreet calf you know we're a nice pretty cool restaurant and it's it's everything's uh smoked and barbecued and so it's you know it's wanting to be adventurous and you know inspirational so by being allowed to go in to this restaurant and work it's suddenly like wow i can do this mm-hmm. and at the end of that process we don't care if they want to stay in the hospitality industry or not it doesn't really matter but if they've got the fire in their belly and they've got the opportunity and they know that we'll support them into finding the right thing for them then it's the the possible is in, is you know it's just mm. immense from an employer point of view they're getting somebody that's really well supported and and loyal um because they've lost everything so you know if you find a job that you're really that you you would be happy at you would stick at it wouldn't mm-hmm. you so that's the secret mm. to create a bridge between them going through the program and then finding opportunity are you using your influence let's say in your reputation could you use your influence and reputation to then give them pathways more into corporate uh, type roles yeah so the, the something really uh, if you look at the pandemic the really positive thing that's yeah. happened in the pandemic if there is anything is the change of of people's mindset so personal people you know people have they've decided i don't want to do this anymore i want to do something else so that's one massive change that's happened 
corporates and companies and brands have decided that to change as well. So before we would have to kind of, you know, use our network, my particularly my network to kind of twist the arms of people to go, look, I've got this guy. He's really amazing. He just needs an opportunity. I'll support him. I will come and visit you every week. You know, will you please take him on to now being companies coming to us saying, we want to support more people, partly because they don't have the people anymore because people have moved on and changed. And partly because, because they've realized that actually if they're going to recruit that wouldn't it be better to recruit in a more socially mindful way. Now that's driven for, t- by two, two thoughts. One is at the moment they're struggling so much, they'll take anybody and when anybody just comes, you know, they'll probably cost you more money and they probably won't be as good as you need. So isn't it better to go for, right, I'll work with Beyond Food or another organization like ours. I know I'm getting somebody that lacks experience, but I'm getting somebody that's really well supported and I can teach them everything. And they'll have a much better attitude because actually they're really grateful of getting the opportunity. And it's a magic moment at the moment because we you can see these companies, you know, I'm talking big companies as well, so... Hilton's a good example. So they've now developed their own program. So they take Beyond Food cohorts. They're not just taking one or two. They take a whole cohort and they'll put them through a week of inspiration and they'll get to try different departments. At the end of the week, they get to choose which department they want to work in on the Friday. And then the following week, they, they're interviewed for full-time jobs or part-time jobs. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing. You know, that's fantastic. Yeah. So it, yeah. it's happening more and more. What you just described does feel like it's something that can scale. Mm. Is it just a case that is you're, if someone was in, let's say, in New York or in Chicago or Austin, wanted to replicate what you've done, how would they go about it? By contacting you and yeah, taking I think the framework so. of the program. Yeah, listen, I'm I'm sort of realistic about scale mm. because I've seen scale, I've seen chef scale. Um, and it fell and other businesses and brands and things. And my expertise was never to, to know, I don't have an expertise in knowing how to scale a restaurant company, let alone a socially minded one, despite knowing there's a need for it. So we just didn't. And we, or I also felt I needed to, I, I want to make a difference for the whole number of people that I'm working with and not just kind of spread myself so thin that actually only help them 70% of the time. That wasn't an option for me. So I held growth back. And to be fair, I don't think our stakeholders were, that they were, they were invested in what we were doing in that one place. Um, scale's become more interesting to me since turning 50 to kind of starting to think about, well, I guess starting legacy, to think about yeah. the mortal coil and yeah, thinking about, yeah. well, what's your legacy and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So you think, well, have I held it back? Well, maybe it's time to scale but how do you scale is that about but you've got, but you've got pwc as a partner and they are global mm. so if you've got a you are like the the hub presumably they with their support and you said it is a partnership mm. and they're consultants and they under they go into businesses and mm. and tell them how to operate you've got an operating model that could presumably be guided in, and, and focus to identify the markets and the cities where PwC are and then take that hub and create a hub and spoke um, model mm. and then do tests and see, you know, I could, I mean, it, it for me, it's, it makes sense because I think there's an urgency to seeing other programs like this scale mm. to other cities where there there is desperate need. You know, 
I could see something like approaching Robert Marchetti at Neuhaus. Mm. Um, and he has his restaurant Spaghetti Tavern and is saying, okay, get Robert in a room with PwC in New York and saying, and you get you together and say, how do we do this in New York? Yeah, mm. no, I, I would love, I think that would be, mm. that would be in, in the, in the three to five year mm. period in the next three to five years of us doing that. There's a couple of things that we want to do to scale in London first. Uh, one is just in our own building because we have refurbished downstairs um, just before the pandemic and we didn't do upstairs and so growing. And that's about growing capacity. So just just changing landscape um, because we can help more people just where we are. Then you've got London and the UK. And, you know, like I say, ego sometimes can push you to do things that you could lose the grip of pretty quickly. I do tussle with this a lot because I also look at not just social entrepreneurs, but sh- but chefs in particular seem to grow and franchise and do various different things. And I think, well, is that something you should be doing? Am I failing because I'm not doing that? Or am I being, you know, resolute to the people that I have, like, you know, got in my control? And so it's a d- an interesting one. I think um, with PwC, it's not their business model to be growing a social enterprise restaurant. It's not why they did it. They did it because within their own footprint in, in the London office, there was an opportunity to, to kind of help people. We have looked at other sites, particularly in the UK and for them to support it, they can support it because it's at the foot of their front yeah, door. Yeah. Now we often get PwC coming in and various global partners that are working across the, you know, and you know, I think it may, it may happen. I like the idea is when I talk about my own legacy of telling the story and talking about how we do it, why we do it, what, what we do exactly. I would be willing to share everything that I've done. Uh, I do share it quite regularly because in the hope and dream that someone goes, you know what? I think I could uh, let me have a, you know, to so, so sit down with a Robert or whoever and share and, you know, cause I'm not, I don't want my stuff to be exclusive to just one space. Hmm. Well, I think that's a conversation we'll have outside of the podcast. I mean, there's the other thing as well is that you are, as you say, you're no longer a homelessness charity. You are a mental health charity. And I think that opens other doors for conversations with family foundations that we've talked to as well through the podcast Mm. that are very much focused on mental health. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you take the idea of unraveling and you think about, well, who could be unraveling? Mm. It's massive. Mm-hmm. And so we can now, as a charity, hand on heart, talk to the NHS. Yeah. We can talk to probation. We can talk to schools. Mm-hmm. We can talk to, you know, uh, you know, so many different people. Um, so that's scaling in itself just by widening the, the kind of the market, if you like. Where would you like to be in 2030? Talking your legacy and it's, you know, it's not that far off. It's only seven years now. Yeah. God. Yeah. Um, Obviously, if no one the loners are become a global um, band, you'll be the sound of the roadie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if none of the loners are that successful, then um, maybe we'll have restaurants everywhere. Who yeah. knows? No. <laughs> uh, nah. In all seriousness, if if I would love that Brigade is still working, I'd love the fact that that Beyond Food is continuing helping supporting people. Ideally, the, we wouldn't need it, but you know that's not going to happen anytime soon. So, 
so that it's continuing. And I think my myself would be about sharing what I'm doing and growing, scaling the idea. Personally, I think that's the way to, to spend the sort of the next seven years for me. You know, I don't want to be particularly stuck in one's one place forever. That's obviously I want to kind of grow that. But do I want to be cooking every night in a mm. restaurant when I'm 60? Probably not. <laughs> um, even despite loving it. Mm. Um, but this idea of talking to others and sharing ideas and, and hopefully creating new partnerships. And, and if that, even if that means that I sow the seed uh. and, and I can just be there to the you know, helping hand kind of thing, I'd be happy with that. I don't know if you're expecting kind of global dominance as an answer, but no, no, it, just interesting to yeah. see. What do you think your superpower is? Um, connecting people, mm-hmm. connecting yeah. people through food. Okay. So, what do people compliment you for? <laughs> um, being annoying, <laughs> <laughs> being being resilient, uh, hardworking. Uh, um, I won't let go. Yeah. If if I had a bunch of people around this table telling me I can't do something for the wrong reasons, I will stand on it and I will make them realize that it's the right thing to do. Like I'm not always right and I'm not worthy either. You know, mm. you know, I'm a social entrepreneur. I still mm. want to be paid. I still mm. need to yeah. live and I want to live well, of course. But, but it, we can do both things. You know, mm. we can help people. It's actually easier than we imagine. Mm-hmm. And I think. One of the biggest things is about getting, cause I love corporates mm-hmm. more than I do the governments. Yeah. Um, because they've, they've got the, they've got the, the resources to, to help people like me achieve, you know, and, and find success for others. Whereas the government's much more difficult, um, for lots of political reasons. The people I meet in, you know, whether it's tech or hospitality or whatever, they want to do, they want to make a difference. They just don't always know how, and I can provide that, the how. So, and normally if you can find the right leaders in those businesses, they, they you know, they also want to make a difference that's broader than just to the shareholders. So it's, that's kind of fun. So, you know, let's continue doing that. I made a pivot with the podcast to focus on, to make it trigger action. To believe that there's enough talk in the world, not enough action. Um, so the question is, what actions can business leaders or people take uh, to drive the change and impact that we need in the world? Yeah, so I think I think one is uh, abolish lip service to mm-hmm. social impact. You know, it's not just about your brand ticking a box. Um, you know, if you're going, if you want to make a difference, make it for the right reasons. Use your expertise within your organization to, to, to make a difference. And that difference might be to support someone like me. Um, because together we could do something quite amazing. And, and there's lots of people like me in the world. Um, and, you know, and don't, don't make it a competition between charities because that quite often happens. Um, you know, find a charity that or an organization that you really believe in or a cause and really, really get behind it. Um, and really, you know, utilize your resources to kind of really drive it and make a difference for it. Cause it's hard work and it's quite a lonely existence, you know, kind of wanting to make that change. And if you're constrained by money or expertise or technology or something, it's, it's quite hard. But actually when you get a company that really gets it, it's, it's so, such a powerful, motivating, um, 
thing to do, you know, for everybody. It's and it's quite humbling. You know, good thing about Beyond Food and Brigade is you if you come if you're a corporate and you come to have an event there or we do these amazing takeover events where they where the corporates work with the team to run the restaurant and they bring their clients in. It's, it's just they're groundbreaking. But the working alongside someone that's changed their life and when you have an you know, if you're I don't know, you're butchering or peeling carrots or something alongside them and you're chatting about what they've gone through, you realise, God, it could be me. Oh, it could have been me, mm. you know. And then you realise that actually that person is probably more powerful in as much as they've made more change in their lives to, to, to get back on their feet and to mm. move forward than, than they'll ever make. And it's quite an interesting dynamic. Hmm. Fascinating. One of the other things that um, my guest that was staying with us for South by Morgan said is the in terms of her future trends, is the importance, the emerging importance of the table as a symbol of connectivity. So we're increasingly seeing, um, moving to a time of connectedness, uh, a connection over competition, where people need to come together around tables. And mm. when you're on a table, it's usually around food. Mm. So food as a, a social connector is becoming increasingly important. Mm. So not just in a traditional restaurant scene, not just at home, but in these uh, designed social events. And it feels like you are at the center of that with what you're doing with, with Beyond Food of, of orchestrating connectedness and the opportunity for, to, for people to bond together over new ideas and build new relationships. Yeah. I mean, and listen, it's not a new thing. If you think of no, historically, it's and, been always been the way, yeah. but we've looked, we've, I think what's happened in, in the latter years of the 20th century and the, the sort of the beginning of the 21st century, we've lost sight mm. of the, of, or have lost touch with the power of the table and food mm. to bring people together. Yeah. I mean, as the pandemic faded away and people started to return, not that they've returned in full, but they, they are returning. The first thing they did is, as comp- companies were doing, we were encouraging people to come to the restaurant to sit as a team and have some food. In some cases, where I've been doing cook, because we run a cook school as well, as you know, and we use that cook school to kind of get people to kind of work differently, engage with each other differently. Many of the people, the companies that have come to beyond, uh, to Brigade and support Beyond Food, they haven't actually met each other before physically. And they've been working together for a year, two years. It's an extraordinary idea that, so food is like the first port of call, you know. Yeah, let's have lunch. Let's let's have dinner. Let's cook lunch. Even better, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the cooking, the working together in a different way to to have a different conversation, a more engaging conversation is is what I love, and I think it's it is very powerful. And of course, you know, the easy way to support an organisation like Beyond Food is to come and utilise the restaurant. It's just very simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, concept, you know, if you eat there and have a drink there or use it's private dining or whatever, you're automatically helping people. Um, and you can get involved. You can mentor, coach, give it a, an expertise. So it's, in, it's important to, to do that. But yeah, no, I think wider events. Um, my wife's got a, an organization, um, that, that is runs purposeful events. It's, it's a, it's a driving, it's a driving trend for sure. Mm-hmm. On a personal level, you've gone through some pretty harrowing times of, as you said, you've not been maybe as business minded as you could have been. How do you remain, re- and you must have, a, you face rejection. 
Um, and how do you remain resolute and resilient and deal with the fragility of doubt must be natural part of the journey of being a social entrepreneur? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm like anybody, I go through big fits of huge doubtful moments of, I'm being on my own quite a lot of trying to drive change and bigger organizations around me. I, you know, with, with government and corporates and investors and stuff, they have a higher ground sometimes. They have a more, you know, kind of like a, they might have financial or political kind of lead, leadership than more uh, higher than I do, but I have the moral leadership and I use that a lot because I know what I'm trying to do is, is, is the right side of doing things for good reason. And, you know, we, we had a conversation the other day, didn't we, about purpose. And I'm very clear on my purpose. And, you know, usually if I'm with anybody, it's because I've driven the, that meeting because of the purpose that I've decided. I don't know anyone that's had, you know, it's got such a clear sense of purpose than I do. Mm-hmm. And so usually when I'm there anyway, yeah. so I, I use it and that's my resilience model. But yeah, I have times where I have to talk to people that are more edu- have better education and more intelligent, maybe have much better resources, more technology, but they haven't got the, my driving purpose. And so, but I also understand that it's, we have to negotiate, we have to compromise, we have to work together. We have to be in the true sense of the term, have a meaningful partnership. And I respect them massively. And, and I think that everybody respects me. So that keeps me on the straight and narrow really but i'm quite fragile i've gone through you know i've gone through an awful lot um i've learned an awful lot but i've i've experienced quite a lot and so you know you've got to keep fighting the fight well well on that um the goal of the podcast is to engineer serendipitous connections Mm. um and facilitate what we're calling random collisions they're not really random because they are actually intentional collisions but random collisions are between people who never otherwise connect or collide or mm. collude, let's say, I think you said the other day. So are you open to us um, connecting you with other guests and tapping into your connections as well, based on our belief in the power, uh, the potential value that absolutely. it will lead to? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm excited by it. And um, like, I, I love the way that you can meet someone and kind of, it deviates from where you were originally thinking, but it takes you on a new path, which is you know, could be incredibly exciting. So absolutely. Thank well, you. I look forward to that. And we might, we end up doing some of our, when we get to doing events, which we're planning to do, um, maybe we, we have an event at, um, Brigade London. Yeah, please do. Yeah. And if you, or if you need some food in somewhere else, yeah. give me a call. There, there, you, there you go. <laughs> okay. Well, final question. Um, who do we interview next? Um, I'm very tempted to say, the whole band of Noah and the Loners. And of course, you know, you're very welcome to do that. Maybe tonight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I, I've, my kin, you know, with my cause and I use food as a catalyst, I find that really interesting. And I've, I'd like to do someone similar. So a very good friend of mine, his name's Math Potts. That's M A double F Potts double T. And he runs an organization called Camarados. And I find him, number one, he was, he's, he's all his fault. And I'm, working in in the world that I work in because he he was the guy at the DCLG and he's done all sorts of amazing things but he, the Camarados is is just an incredible organization and it creates public living rooms and there's some in America so it's mainly the UK based but this idea that if you 
you know, when, when people become vulnerable, it's usually because of people and, you know, the relationships are broken down and that drives a certain, um, vulnerability. And if you are somebody that then exercises then and some kind of addiction or social exclusion or however, no matter what your, where you, where you, you know, where you come from in life, where do you go? And math really centered on this idea. Well, most people that are vulnerable won't go to the doctor and talk about it. They might, you know, they might struggle to go to uh, a church or they might, you know, where do, where do you go? If so, if you're, you know, if you're an accountant and you've got a drink problem, you know, where do you go? It's really difficult. You know, you might, or a gambling addiction or, or yeah, I don't know, you've lacked, you lack confidence to be able to have a conversation with anyone. So he creates these public living rooms and they're incredible mm. and they're a lot of fun, very colorful, Interesting, but I've it's a place it. to have a conversation, um, with no, no airs and graces. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, math. Okay. He happens to cool. be the most incredible jazz musician you've ever heard in your life, which is how I met him on a ship, him playing piano and me cooking. Wow. Um, and so again, he uses music as a, as a form of. And where's he based? People. Near Oxford, Wallingford. Huh? Okay. Well, yeah. I look forward to that connection. So I will make it. Um, well, I'll just, um, wrap up and say thank you very much for your time. Mm. I really look forward. I think this is just the beginning of many conversations. Mm, definitely. And many connections. And, uh, anything we can do, like I say, any of our network, um, that you see you want a connection with, then, um, just shout and as I say, Sam and myself will also, uh, engineer some random collisions and see people we think you can connect with where there'll be mm. value. And I mm. definitely think even a conversation with some of the, not just Robert, but some of the other hospitality restaurateurs that we've met through the Raw Hospitality Show, the other podcast. Mm. I did this other project in during the, the pandemic for a guest called Vanessa Barboni Halleck, who's a social entrepreneur, uh, but, and an entrepreneur has a, a sustainable women's fashion brand called Another Tomorrow. And she asked myself and my partner Elaine to do a design, social design project to look at the West Village in New York during mm. the pandemic. And how do we re-knit the fabric, a bit like you're unraveling? Mm. How do we re-knit the fabric of a neighborhood which has been affected by gentrification and by the loss of the mum and pop shops mm. and uh, then the impact of COVID? So we went out, we interviewed restaurateurs, retailers, and residents to find out what was needed and some local politicians. And that was a fascinating yeah, yeah. project that we met. And then we ended up having to move to Austin and had to put it on ice. Mm. But it's, it's there in the background yeah, to be yeah, able to yeah. do it. And it's something we could look at for other neighborhoods Definitely. as well. Because I think hyper-local building connection and making people feel a sense of ownership to their communities and their neighborhoods mm. has to happen going forward as we... um as the global world unravels and we have to, I think, reconnect locally. Yeah, we've got a, in June actually, because we were going to refurb upstairs, we decided not to run Fresh Life in June, but to run a kind of a food festival uh, within, it's, it's in this, it's almost triangular kind of community just near the, the restaurant and just be there and let people know who we are and what we do and cook with us and eat food with us and, and just have you know, have a conversation and we, you know, rarely have we done that. We're really locally. It's really important. I said in, um, I can't remember, it was another guest recently. When I lived in Williamsburg, we had a, Williamsburg in New York, they were building a, an area called, um, 
it was the old sugar factory, the Domino Sugar Factory mm. in New York, and it was being renovated by this real estate developer over seven years. Mm. So they had a piece of land and they said, we're opening it up. Anyone can pitch what they want to do with it. So this guy, uh, Ryan Watson, pitched um, his lawyer and he pitched a community farm. Mm. And for seven years in Williamsburg, they had this thing called the North Brooklyn Farm where mm. they grew fresh food, grassy area. They did uh, uh, pop, they, they did meals mm. and drinks at weekends. You could do you could book the space for corporate dinners and they would cook for you. And it was all fresh and all mm. locally sourced uh, meats. And it was brilliant. And what it did, when I was there for a couple of years before I discovered it, I didn't know anyone in the neighborhood. Mm. But within a space of one year going to the, the community farm, mm. you met people. Mm. And you got to know people in your um, community you would, you would just never otherwise connect with. Because you go into a bar, you don't sit down and start talking to, well, not on the scale that you did with this farm. And what it did is it just galvanized people around the, the, the area and the belief in the power of buying locally sourced food, not yeah, yeah. going to Whole Foods and mm. buying your broccoli or not going to yeah. another store uh, and buying your arugula. But they, if you get it there, mm. fresh out of the ground because, and cheaper. Yeah, I mean, marketplaces were the center of communities, weren't they? Yeah. It's where you learned all the gossip, you decided what was going to happen and... Um, I remember with the work I did with Nora, actually, the global work that we did with Nora was about the sights, the, was it the sights and smells of the open marketplace? Mm. And it was, it's very vibrant. But place. that was what it was like. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they had flowers. You could cut the flowers and take them away. <laughs> you yeah, could yeah. just go and say, I want, Epic. um, I, 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 you know, I want some, uh, the, uh, it's broccoli because I was buying that all the time. And it's incredible. And I think we need more of that in, yeah. in local communities. And I think it's a responsibility of, uh, of local politicians and leader community leaders and mm. probably restaurateurs to sort of lead that charge. Yeah, yeah no, totally agree. Yeah. So I think it's really mm. exciting what you're doing. Mm, thank you. The other thing as well that reminds me of is when I was at McCann in London, the I didn't work on the Mastercard team, but I'd helped them with some of their digital stuff. But they did a one of the projects we did for their priceless program was the Big Lunch. Oh yeah, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, which yeah. is a way of bringing communities well, together. Basically, that's what we're doing in the in the exactly, summer. Exactly, yeah. stolen the idea like, a little yeah. bit, but this idea of having a having lunch in the community and and the, you know some of the people don't leave their their estate, mm -hmm. you know. So it's if you think if you if you feel like you're unraveling and you're just we're we're trying to find what we're trying to do is we're trying to find ten people within the estate that are famous in their own kitchen. So the idea they do one or two things that they do really well and it, but it, the, but nobody else knows them. And, you know, the hope and dream is that we find 10 people that are, that are unraveled and we can support them and get them to teach them how to cook for a hundred people. And then we'll have 10 over each day. So it'll be mm. 2000 meals, um, over the course of the, of the weekend. Fantastic. So it should be fun. Have to try and be in London that, that time. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, Simon, thank you very much. And uh, looking forward to the gig tonight. Yeah. Yeah. yeah can't wait. <laughs> all right. Thanks very Cheers. much. Okay. That's all for now, folks. Now, here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.